I was a kid growing up in Jersey. Uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. to fight on a foreign shore. His mama sure was proud of him. He stood straight and tall in his uniform and all. His mama's face broke out in, all into a grin. Oh, son, you look so fine. I'm glad you're a son of mine. You make me proud to know you're wearing a gun. Do what the captain says. A lot of medals you will get. We'll put them on the wall when you get home. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about John Brown, a relatively obscure song from the Dylan songbook, is fellow Bobcat Pete Bylone. Hi, Pete. Hi, Rob. How are you? I am doing great. It's nice to have you on the show. It's great to be here. So, uh, yeah, we're, so we're going to talk about John Brown, but I mean, yeah, this is, uh, of course, this is your first episode. So we got to ask you the standard introductory questions. How did you become a fan? Sure, sure. Um, so I became a fan really, uh, in high school, I would say is when I was, was introduced to him, really. Um, my household growing up wasn't an overly musical household. Uh, and, uh, it was, uh, in history class that, um, a friend of mine, we had a, a class like going through American history and, and relating songs to historical periods and kind of translating how the songs were conveying social messages. And of, of course you couldn't, you know, you can't imagine getting through an assignment like that without somebody throwing, uh, some Dylan in there. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I, you know, got introduced to him through that kind of assignment through my friends. And then uh, listened to to more of his stuff. My sister worked at the uh, at the wall. I don't know if you remember that CD store. But I do. Yes. <laughs> I, I love I love the wall. They gave you that little sticker that you could return scratch CDs. Oh, that was the best thing. <laughs> uh, so um, through her, I bought um, Biograph. Was the first um, my first exposure, like my the first Dylan album that I owned. Um, so that was a little bit a little bit unconventional because there's a lot of stuff on there that just you know isn't on his his normal release studio albums. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I kind of came at him sideways a little bit. Um, and then from there, um, once I got into college, uh, around that time, Columbia house was huge. And I just started filling out the, the, uh, the collection with, you know, 13 CDs for a penny and, <laughs> uh, doing as much as I can, uh, getting caught up. Then that was like the early nineties. So that was, that was really my introduction. My, my introduction was, uh, the biograph starting out and then, and then just, you know, as I accumulated more and more CDs, just got more and more into them and, and, you know, dug the, the musicianship on most of it, you know, some of it was a miss for me, but, but the musicianship was really good for most of it. And then uh, the lyrical content was just second to none, as far as I was concerned. And that's, you know, putting him up against at the time, you know, Pearl Jam and Nirvana and, and Beck and, and those people that were really like coming to the forefront at that time. Um, who had lyrics that were that were had depth, right? But mm -hmm. but not the kind of layering or or like social consciousness that that Dylan had in a lot of his stuff. It was it was uh it was quite a trip for me to to kind of follow him um, whilst trying to you know while while uh, trying to stay current with uh, the current music scene as well. It was uh, yeah he really he stood out. Right, right. <laughs> so, were you were you using up all your thirteen CDs for one penny for Dylan, or were you mixing it in? No, I was I was definitely mixing it. In. Like I said, my sister worked at the CD store, so I could get you know the bargain bin stuff from her. 
Uh, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the eighties stuff was was too cheap for me to to go uh to go with Columbia House. But the but the greatest hits for sure. Like that was the first I think that was his first proper C D that I had was was Greatest Hits Volume Two. Okay. Um and then so that that balanced off the the weird stuff that I had on off biograph. But some I'm I'm telling you the stuff off biograph is still some of my favorite takes on those songs. The it's, the, bi- the biograph version of Isis is forever my favorite. It's a great way to if you're trying to introduce somebody to the breadth of the catalog, it's a great way to start because it's got all the hits, uh, but then it's got obscure stuff too. So it's yeah. a, it's a really it still remains a great introductory set for yeah. uh, for for anybody getting into them at the first time. So uh, yeah, for those of you too young to remember, you will never be able to appreciate the feeling of <laughs> going to a, driving all the way to a mall to go to a store to pay seventeen ninety nine for a CD. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, oh boy. So uh, have you seen Dylan live? I, I have. I've seen him uh, only four times, which surprised me when I sat down and thought about it. But uh, yeah, I, I saw him once. So I went to, uh, uh, I saw him once at college. He played at my college. I saw him, that was in 94. Uh, then I saw him um, with Willie Nelson when they were doing the baseball stadium tour in 2005. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah, that was a really good show. Um, then I saw him in, in uh, Kansas City in 2008. Um, and the last time I saw him was here in Cincinnati where I live now. And that was in 2013 with, with the uh, Americanorama tour with Wilco and uh, My Morning Jacket. That's that was an interesting combination. I didn't get to yeah. see that tour, but that's a... it was. Yeah, it was quite a it was quite a uh, crowd that was there. Yeah. <laughs> no. well, very I, I, I wanted to point out. I thought you'd find this interesting. The uh, the Uptown Theater uh, where I saw him in Kansas City. <clears throat> he played three three songs that night, and I know that you like to track how often songs are played uh, oh, yeah. on live. So he played three songs that night that have been played less than a hundred times live. And I didn't know it at the time. Like I, I just realized this doing like looking this stuff up for this, for this episode, but he played rolling and tumbling. Hmm. He played beyond the horizon and he played chimes of freedom. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. yeah and, that would be and, really amazing. And I'm, and I'm telling you like for me there that night, that it totally missed me how rarely he plays those songs. Yeah. But, but uh, he had the amps up so loud, like the whole building was vibrating. It was all, what an awesome show. <laughs> I've never seen uh, Chimes of Freedom live. I've never seen it done live. That would be amazing. Yeah. It, uh, uh, the whole yeah, yeah, the whole show was just fantastic. Oh, very cool. All right. Well, excellent. That's fantastic. So, okay. I, you mentioned, you know, you were getting into Bob in the mid, very early 90s. And, of course, it was in 94 when this MTV Unplugged album came out, which is where uh, he first, his first official recording of John Brown uh, was released. Now, of course, this song was recorded way back in 1962, 63. It was part of the Whitmark demos back where he was, uh, you know, cranking out songs and going, you know, writing more songs than he could ever put on any album. So he was constantly copywriting songs and getting them, you know, put into the official corpus. Uh, and as far as I understand about John Brown, uh, it was never considered for an album. I mean, it was, I, from what I, the research that I've done, it was never uh, attempted at any album sessions for like uh, freewheeling or for times there are changes. So this is a song that he wrote in 62 or 63, recorded, got it down, and then basically just sort of forgot about uh, until then he decided to bring it out again. In, and and I, I learned this relatively recently in the, in the late 80s. Uh, when I got the record, when I got the unplugged record, I didn't know about any of that. So this was a song actually that I had been introduced uh, to uh, through a covers record. In 1990, there was an album called I Shall Be Unreleased, which was all covers 
of Bob Dylan songs that had never been released. So it had, I mean, you know, uh, to, you know, to underscore the breadth of his catalog, you could make up a whole record of just unreleased Dylan songs covered by other people. And it had, you know, Dion singing Farewell and had Johnny Cash singing Wanted Man. And it had the nice. Staple Singers singing John Brown. And uh, have you ever heard that version? I have not, no. It's, it's, you can find it on YouTube. It's marvelous. It's very spooky. Uh, it's got these back, it's got the, some of them in the, some of the bands singing like this, woo, doing this sort of ghostly sound behind it. And it's really marvelous. And I really liked the song, but I was unfamiliar with it until, again, like I said, he decided to bring it out on the, uh, the Unplugged record in 1994. So I want to go a little bit further into the lyrics here. Uh, it's obviously, it's a uh, story song. It's just telling this very direct story. As that old train pulled out, John's mom began to shout, Telling everyone in the neighborhood, that's my son, it's about to go. He's a soldier now, you know. She made well sure her neighbors understood. She got a letter once in a while, and her face broke into a smile. She showed them to the people from next door, and she bragged about her son with his uniform and gun and these things she called a good old-fashioned war. Uh, in the lyrics, uh, it adds, with, oh, a good old-fashioned war. Now, in the unplugged version, he doesn't sing that extra little line there. But one of the things I like about this song so much is it's – does away with all of allegory and metaphor. I mean, I love that about Bob Dylan, all the allegory and the metaphor, but this song does away with all that. It is as direct as it possibly could be about the horrors of war. And there's something I like about that. It is so blisteringly direct. I really like that. Yeah, no, it, it definitely, um, yeah, you're not, you're not left to wonder, you know, like uh, on Desolation Row, who all these characters are that he's talking about. Right. It's, He's he's very clear about you know this is this is John Brown he's he's a young man that's enlisted in the in the military and this is his mother and that's those are the only two people you need to know it's it's really very straightforward. I always you know again before I I knew I didn't I didn't pay as much attention in history class as I should have I knew that when I heard this song that there was a John Brown there was somebody mm-hmm. famous named John Brown it wasn't until later I realized he was an abolitionist mm-hmm. uh, famous abolitionist but I'm thinking Dylan was using the name as the most sort of generic name possible other than like a John Smith John Brown is about as like America kind of sounding a name as as possible. Um, so the story, the story goes on. He says that the letters ceased to come for a long time. They did not come. They ceased to come for about 10 months or more. Then a letter finally came saying, go down to meet the train. Your son, your son's coming home from the war. She smiled and went right down. She looked up and all around, but you could not see her soldier son in sight, but all, as all the people passed, she saw her son at last. When she did, she could not believe her eyes. Oh, his face was all shot off and his hands were blown away. And he wore a metal brace around his waist and he whispered kind of slow in a voice she did not know, but she couldn't even recognize his face. Um, oh, oh, tell me, my darling son, pray tell me what they've done. How is it that you've come to be this way? He tried to best his talk, but his mouth could hardly move and his mother had to turn her face away. Don't you remember, Ma, when I went off to war? You thought it was the best thing that I could do. I was on the battleground. You were home acting proud. You weren't there standing in my shoes. Oh, Lord, I thought when I was there, God, what am I doing here? I'm trying to kill somebody or die trying. But the thing that scared me most when my enemy came close is I see his face look just like mine. So we're going to go a little further onto lyrics in, in a moment. But I, I'm curious what you – well, why did you want to talk about this song, Pete? You were the one who selected the song. I mean, I love this song, but you were the one that asked sure. about no, what, what is right. it about the song that really com- compelled you? So I, I threw it on the, the list of songs that I, I thought I'd like to talk about because, um, 
I was introduced to it in 94 off the, off the, uh, the, uh, unplugged session as well. And I thought that it was that song having not heard it in on any of his other albums, you know, I really wasn't familiar with the history of it or anything, but it was so like his performance on that night of it was so perfect. Um, for starters, like I, I, there's not many, uh, you know, of all those unplugged sessions that you, that, that MTV released with Nirvana and, and all the groups that they had, um, there's not many that are just like flawless performances, but I thought that his performance of that song was, was absolutely spot on. But at the time I was, uh, I was at school at West Point and, uh, being in the military and, and listening to these songs, uh, you know, his, um, protest songs, his anti-war machine songs, I thought that it was, uh, an interesting perspective like to have, you know, as, as I was absorbing, you know, <laughs> conflicting messages between, you know, the, the art of the song and the, uh, you know, indoctrination of being a professional soldier. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that, that kind of, you know, uh, dichotomy there between, between war is horrible and war is necessary. Um uh, makes me want to like kind of bring a fresh perspective of the, on this, uh, you know, as somebody that's, that's been John Brown, uh, mm. or, or at least had the potential to be John Brown and to talk about what the song kind of means from that perspective. Dylan has always shown uh, enormous sympathy. Well, I mean, he's always shown enormous sympathy period, but he's always shown enormous sympathy for people, uh, that have been as you 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 just used the phrase war machine mm-hmm. people people thrown into you know sort of metaphorical meat grinders uh, sure. of uh, either socially or uh you know uh, governmentally or you know yeah. that kind of thing or or romantically but he's always had a lot of sympathy for people and we're really through this song uh, for the, ha- the first two thirds of it the main character is really the mother Mm-hmm. is the mother that we're wrapped up in. And obviously right. the mother is showing a lot of pride. And, you know, initially there's nothing terribly wrong with being proud of your of your child uh, in uniform going off to war, uh, especially if you think that the war is just. Uh, and it's interesting, again, this, the, the, we never get any sense in this song of what war we're talking about here. Right. Um, the, the, we'll, we'll get into, the, again, the, the final couple of verses here. There, there feels like it's a World War I kind of thing because it's it was after world war one that america was finally started to sh- be shown uh the horrors of what war could do to people i mean obviously we know that it kills people and it can and can cripple them but it can also maim them uh, right. you know like physically maim them and it, and it was the world war one was the first war where people started coming back to where they would look uh, they, you know, they would people come back with with horribly damaged faces or something that uh, would obviously was something that, that that could never be removed and would they would be seen for the rest of their lives in a certain way. And this this, this that's the read I get from it. Sort of, it's a World War One song, but it doesn't have to be. Obviously, as the uh, as the 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 machines of war get more and more sophisticated uh, and they become more and more powerful and vicious. Uh, again, it could be anywhere, but that's sort of the, the read I get from when I listen to the song. But Dylan's, Dylan is always sympathetic. John Brown, the character, is, from what we understand of him, as he's briefly sketched here, he's not a bad guy. He's not looking to kill people. Uh, and it's in the, it's on that moment on the battlefield that he has that moment of clarity where he realizes 
the person I've been assigned to kill looks just like me. Right. And it's in that moment. And it's, it's amazing in the, 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 the way he does it in the song is that he was able to convey so much information so, so quickly is that you really, with just a couple of lines, we are immediately flipped over to John Brown's point of view and we were completely on his side. You know, right. you're totally like, oh, wow, okay, this guy didn't probably fully understand what he was doing, and now that he's there and he's understanding, undergoing the terror of war, he's realizing what he's done and uh, the mistake he's made. And uh, it's, again, it's, it's startling. And, yes, the, the MTV Unplugged performance is interesting because there is the bootleg available uh, of the Unplugged uh, concerts, and he actually does flub a couple of lines in John Brown, but when they did the album, they edited it in a way that mm. it sounds flawless. Mm. Uh, he he messes up the story at one point and sort of and says the couple the same couple of lines uh, uh, twice, <coughs> and then he corrects himself. Uh, but in terms of the diction, the way he spits out these words, it really is a masterful masterful performance. I mean, the the penultimate penultimate verse when he says and i couldn't help but think through the thunder rolling and stink that i was just a puppet in a play and through the roar and smoke the string had finally broke and a cannonball blew my eyes away as he turned away to go his mom was acting slow and seeing the metal brace that helped him stand but as he turned away he called his mother close and he dropped his medals down into her hand and i mean that's the kicker of the of the song is that right. this guy is realizing that his mother sort of sent him there and here it is. This is what you wanted, Ma. This is what it is. And he walks away from her. But man, the performance and the, the instrumentation of the band on the unplugged session is just fantastic. It's, it's really sharp and very precise. And you have that guitar sting that comes mm-hmm. in and you hear that ting kind of, I'm, again, I'm horrible <laughs> trying to convey <laughs> the music of it, but it's, it, it really does help tell the story wonderfully. And, it, I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, for Unplugged was in a lot of ways the greatest hits collection. To mm-hmm. pull this song out was pretty remarkable because you have to think a lot of the audience had no idea what it was. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, um, you know, uh, and, and I, it, it's not unlike, um, you know, Nirvana, again, referencing probably the most popular uh, Unplugged album, pulling out Lake of Fire, um, which wasn't even in their catalog, right, <laughs> to play. Um so, uh, I mean, there's some, there's some history there, but yeah, I mean, it had to hold some significance for him, I would think, to, to put it out in this way, in this, uh, in this format, you know, with, with what I'm sure for him was a, a different set of eyes seeing him play than, than what he would normally get. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I did feel like it was sort of almost like a treat for the diehard fans that he knew, like, all right, I'm going to pull this thing out. Now, of course, at the time when I got the MTV Unplugged record, uh, I was unfamiliar with the song outside of the, as I already mentioned, the staple singers uh, cover mm-hmm. version, but I didn't know that it was part of his repertoire. I just, I just thought, well, this is something he's never played before, but actually this song has been played for how obscure it is for a song that sat dormant for 20 years. It's been played live actually quite a bit. It's been played 170 times. He first pulled it out after recording it at the, uh, with the Whitmark demos, he did play it live at the town hall concert. It's available on the uh, 19 live 1962 to 66 rare performances from the copyright collections album. So you can hear him sing it there. So he, he pulled it out live twice in the early sixties and then just left it alone until July 4th, 1987, where he was doing his tour with the grateful dead. And you can actually find that, that actual uh, live performance on YouTube. And, 
paradoxically, for such a grim song, he looks like he's having a great time performing it. I mean, he's smiling, and the band, uh, the Grateful Dead, certainly seems to be enjoying playing it. And it's a very up-tempo, very fast version. And it's it's sort of funny to see him look like he's having fun when he's singing this horrible song about this horrible violence. But uh, it was something that he actually played throughout the 80s and into the 90s, into the early 2010. So it made a lot of sense that it would be part of the Unplugged sessions because it was something he was doing during his live concerts. But as I said, at the time, in 1994, this is pre-internet. I didn't know any of that. So mm. my I was only familiar with from the Unplugged record. But it's it's obviously something he felt some connection to to give it that kind of promotion because he had to know that the MTV Unplugged thing was sort of a big deal. Right, right. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that, you know, if you go back and listen to the Whitmark demo version, um, he, he didn't even change it significantly. Like he cleaned no. it up a little bit. He took out some of the, like the, the, uh, the random shouting lines, the repetitive lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but really he just, just barely tweaked it. Not like he does with a lot of his songs where he completely reworks them. He just like massaged it a little bit and, and, and threw it out there, uh, in the nineties as something that was fresh and sounded new almost. Um, and right. And it's up tempo and it is, it is, uh, heavy but it's not i don't feel like it's a preachy song i feel like like he approaches it like a story song versus a like a moralistic lesson there for like it is absolutely a lesson but it's i feel like he writes he's written songs that have that aspect to them where uh he knows he's preaching a little bit um but this one is more uh yeah direct I mean, that's the, that's the best way to put it. There's, he doesn't have to work hard to make you realize what he's talking about. Yeah, in a weird way. I mean, you take like a song like The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll where he tells a similar story, and then he ends that song with, you know, uh, take the rag away from their face, now is the time for your tears. Then you've got the narrator sort of standing back and telling the listener, right. uh, you know, like, okay, now, the, you know, aren't you – and again, I'm not in any way criticizing that song, but in, in that particular song – the narrator sort of saying, Hey, I just told you this sad story. Now's the time for your tears. Now you can cry because right. I just told you the sad story. He doesn't do any of that in John Brown. He's no. just telling the story and he ends it with, again, with that amazing kicker where it's, and you can see it in your head. You know, he's great at crafting images that make you, you know, you, you could turn this into a movie, John mm-hmm. Brown, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you could see it. And just the idea of standing on the train track, this poor, man who's been mangled uh to beyond recognition and he but he but he he's got the medals he's got and he's and he's waiting he's you know he's waiting to make this because it's not like when he meets when the mother uh beats him at the train track she asks about the medals or anything like that like it's it's not like she's still she's recognizing the horror of it but he is so overwhelmed by what he's experienced and he's so mad that he's been sent there partly by his own family that he's just disgusted but i like yeah the song ends it doesn't end there's no extra verse where the narrator is coming in and then saying wow wasn't that a really sad story i just told you (laughs) right no it's just bang and there is something about the directness of it that i like and it's sort of interesting i went back and i was looking up uh in some books about this and like the two clinton halen books in both books, he refers to John Brown as turgid. He just dismisses mm. the song as turgid. And I, it was funny for many years before, you know, I read those books before I'd ever heard the song. I was like, oh, that John, you know, I trusted what I read. 
because I was like, all right, this guy's just missing the song with just one word. It must not be that great. And then when I heard the MTM, MTV Unplugged version, I was like, I don't know. I like, maybe, I, I like it. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. I like this song. And again, I like the directness of it. And it reminded me a little bit of um, two years, I think it was two years ago. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Spike Lee film, Black Klansman. Uh, yes. But I mean, Black, yeah. I think that's a great movie. Sure. And, 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 you know, Black, they tell this story. And then at the end, he, Spike Lee puts up pictures of the riot in Charlottesville where that young woman was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he puts up her picture. And a lot of people said, Oh, he's Spike Lee's being too obvious. But there's something about that that I liked. I'm like, no, I'm not trying to be subtle here. I am banging you in the head with this thing because that's, the message we're taking, and that's the reading I get from John Brown. It's like there's something almost, and I'm borrowing a phrase from the, the great writer Larry Gelbart, who created MASH, and that's, of course, another one of my interests. But there's there's something artful in its artlessness mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in that this song is so direct and so unsubtle that it just floors you because you're you don't have any room to – navigate any other feeling other than the horror of war that's it that's the song and we're moving on and you've realized you know bob's recording this in 1962 there was a war ramping up at that point we had gotten into the vietnam war but still early right most people didn't know about it it's interesting to me that when dylan decided to bring it out in 87 and then in 92 we weren't really at war in a in a grander sense. I mean, we always are, unfortunately, in some mm. corner of the country. But I mean, we weren't fighting a particular battle at that moment. And I always wondered why Dylan thought that was the moment to bring it out. Like, what what was about 1987 that made him think, I'm going to bring this out? And again, not just do it a couple of times, do it a lot. He played it a lot, of course, of through the 80, through the late 80s and the 90s. And I wonder what it is that he felt connected to the song to bring it out at that point. Yeah, I don't know. I can't speak to to what he was. I mean, none of us can speak to what he's thinking at any no. point. <laughs> no, but, but in the '80s, it really like that. There is no easy thread there uh, to say. Oh well, you know, obviously he saw this and and thought that it was relevant again to tell the story. I mean, in the early '90s, we did have the first Gulf War, but the ramp up to that was so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like. I don't feel like it was a. I mean, that was the that was the. <clears throat> the war that we had, you know, the, the Whitney Houston singing the, the national anthem at the Super Bowl and, <laughs> and patriotism like turned up to 11 and, uh, and everything. So maybe, maybe there I could see where he would bring this out and be like, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great to have this, like to be, you know, support your team. But, but keep in mind that the people that are actually going out and doing the fighting are not experiencing all this grandeur that we're seeing on TV on Super Bowl Sunday. They're actually like living in a terrible place doing terrible things and having terrible things done to them. Yeah. I mean, he really, um, uh, it's sort of interesting. He mentioned, I think in one of his interviews where he was asked what, what he would have imagined doing, uh, and different if he had never become a a musician and he said a Mm. teacher at one point, but he, he said, I think he says that in uh, no direction home that he imagined himself at one point going he considered enlisting, Mm-hmm. And he imagined himself dying in some war. And it's, it, I think that's hard for a lot of us to imagine, you know, private first class Bob Dylan somewhere. <laughs> I guess he would have been Zimmerman, Robert Zimmerman yeah, at that point. Right. But, uh, it's, you know, you, you can't imagine that guy, but, but he obviously, again, he has, he always has sympathy for 
for people caught in these situations that they didn't put themselves in. And the language here, again, is so wonderfully specific. I mean, I love the line, I couldn't help but think through the thunder rolling and stink that I was just a puppet in a play, which is, again, a very um, poetic Mm-hmm. term you would think mm-hmm. john for, for this john brown kid again we don't know this guy at all and maybe he is intelligent yeah, we are maybe right. he's highly educated we don't know that right he's, but a, it, he's an everyman right he's yeah. he's everybody and that's yeah. the intent i think yeah uh and he said the thunder rolling and st- i mean uh, ro- i mean rolling thunder of course became a mm-hmm. phrase in the, in the vietnam war for uh for, and then he used it himself for for his tour in 75 but again just the i can uh, I mean, like, um, have you ever seen the film Paths of Glory, Stanley Kubrick's? Paths no, of Glory? I have not. No. It is my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. And it's, you know, World War I, Kirk Douglas film. And it's it's about the horrors of war and about how how uh, governments and how the higher ups use people like puppets. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's it's about the, the, the basically, uh, the, and it's based on a real event and in um, France's history about how this army regiment is going to execute three soldiers to teach the rest of the unit about cowardice. Mm-hmm. And it's a brutal film and it was banned in, in Germany for many years. And uh, because it was uh, considered so, it, it was so offensive, but it, to sure. me, it's my favorite Kubrick film. And there are some amazing battle sequences in that film. And that's sort of what I conjure when I, when I read these lines again, mm-hmm. the fact that Dylan is so, wonderfully able to put us in this horrible situation uh and the idea again the line about I, i'm trying i have to kill somebody or die trying which is again what a horrible choice to have to make i mean john right. john brown doesn't necessarily want to kill anybody he knows he has to right but he also knows that if you're if if the only choice is it's again kind of quoting the line from Patton where he says uh you know you don't die. Nobody won a war dying for their country. You right. win a war by making some other some other poor bastard die for his country. Right. And you know, you're when you're caught in that situation, what are you going to do? You made the John Brown, but I don't want to kill anybody, but he has to. Well, and and on top of on top of it being his duty, right? He enlisted to do this job. Yep. His mother is expecting him to. Yeah. And that's I think you know the we all we all have had to deal with as as we become adults. That, uh, you know, that part of us that wants to please our parents, um, you know, to, to make them proud of us in, in one way or another. And, you know, the drive that, that <clears throat> I think, and, and, you know, the song is, like you said, is very specific. It's very, you know, it's John Brown and his mom, but clearly he's talking about, um, society in general, right? That, that, mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a group of people that cheer for these soldiers that go to war, but they don't really understand what sending these soldiers to war means. Um, right. or, or they don't acknowledge it until it's too late for these soldiers. So, you know, it's, it's that they have to do these terrible things. They have to go kill people because their mom or their teacher or their, uh, you know, whatever, whatever person they're trying to make proud is expecting them to do this. And, you know, they love these people, but they have to do this terrible thing that they've been taught is immoral their whole life in order to gain that sense of accomplishment or pride or you know it's a very very complicated situation for for uh service members to go through to to you know in order to make you proud i've got to do things that i know at some level is is wrong yeah the mother here obviously is is there she's not given any ounce of humanity Mm -hmm. in this song i mean she's just kind of a and you well let me ask you do you get the sense that uh the the mother is 
uh, truly monstrous or she is just uh, deluded? Like she's I just think, un- think, unaware of what she's really putting her son out to do. I think she is blissfully unaware mm-hmm. of of what it is that she's uh, asking of her son. I think I think you're right. I think this is like a um, as far as the time frame for it. I think you're right. Like World War One sounds right, right? Because we're talking about good old fashioned war, and really after that, we didn't have that same kind of positive outlook on yeah. war, right? I yeah. mean, you you got. Um, John Brown, when when you talk about the parallels you draw with the with the Kubrick movie, I draw um, Dalton Trumbo and Johnny Got His Gun, mm. um, because it's you know you're seeing the the result of war on a soldier, right? Um, that you know has no arms, no legs, you know, no face essentially in, in that book, um, and he's just left with his thoughts and trying to figure out like why did I do this? How did I get here? Was it worth it? Um, and I think that his mother has none of those thoughts. I think I think she is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna caveat my blissfully unaware with a little bit monstrous because <laughs> I feel like I feel like she's uh, the type of person to like. I feel like the first half of the song is about how much pride she personally is getting, like how much she wants her neighbors and and everyone to look at her differently because her son is making the sacrifice. Yes, there's, there's a lot of reflected pride here. Yes, and she's done nothing to earn it. She's done like there is nothing that she is doing to achieve the status that she wants to get as this patriot, you know, protector of freedom. It's her son that's making the sacrifice and she isn't even able in the first half of the song to comprehend the risks that he's taking so that she can, you know, brag to her neighbors. Mm. So, so there is, there is unawareness, but there, there is definitely a little bit of, of, uh, self-promotion that, uh, that, you know, I find this, that's probably the most distasteful thing that I find in the song about the mother is that she's, uh, she's looking to make herself look good at someone else's expense. Right. There's that line she made well sure her neighbors understood. So she's right. she's constantly sort of waving it in people's faces a little bit about, hey, my son is off doing this. He's got his uniform and his gun. And uh, it's, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Johnny got his gun. I've never read that book and I've oh, not seen them and I've, and I've not seen the movie. But the book was written uh, in 1939, right. which uh, makes I didn't know that it went back that far. I didn't realize that it, there was that much of a time lapse between the book and the movie. And so. Well, now that I know the the book was out in '39, I'm like, oh, Dylan must have read that book. He, oh, you know, he's read a million yeah. books, but I'm sure he read that book. Right? Yeah. No, I, I I have no doubt that he read that book. But I mean, for the purposes of the song, right? You couldn't have him be in bed like that because uh, it just it, it, right. It doesn't work as good for the and and we didn't really uh, touch on it in the beginning, but <clears throat> you know, everything Bob writes, he he cribs from someone else or or at least takes these great ideas of other places. Right and melds them together into something new and different and, and wonderful. And I think that that's his his where his true master uh, artsmanship, if that's a word, works. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned the John Brown song that um, that uh, is about the abolitionist that Pete Seeger uh, released in like '59, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was it was fairly current when, or at least that version of it was fairly current when Bob recorded this in in '62, '63, like you said. So I think he took that name. Um, perhaps it was, like you said, just a generic, you know, all American sounding name, but I, I think that he took it a little bit to poke a finger in the chest of, 
the folk scene at the time <laughs> um, because he took um, that John Brown song, uh, the, the way it's arranged became uh, the battle hymn of the Republic, right? That that's the, the same arrangement essentially. Hmm. It became, it became a, it went from being a song about, you know, abolishing slavery and sacrificing and, uh, you know, the horribleness of, of whatever was going on at the time and became this patriotic, you know, glory, glory, hallelujah song, uh, where it was meant to promote nationalism. And I think, uh, and again, this is total projection on my part, as far as trying to put thoughts in Bob's head, but, (laughs) um, I think he, he saw that, you know, folk music is supposed to be about, you know, at the time they were trying to get back to being, um, more pure about the message, more, you know, stand up for the little guy, you know, poke, uh, you know, speak truth to power. Um, they, you know, they had just come out of McCarthyism and all the threat of being accused as a communist made people maybe back off being so critical at the time. And I think, uh, I think he took this John Brown song and said, no, you know what? John Brown is not about nationalism it's not about firing up the troops it's not about being motivated to go kill people it's telling you that killing people enslaving people whatever it is that you want to talk about is bad mm-hmm. so i'm going to take your title john brown and apply it to i uh, he borrows heavily from a uh, like irish ballads like mrs mcgrath which essentially is a you know an irish version of of the song where it talks about a mother sending her son off to war now the mother isn't nearly as monstrous in that song but but her son comes back from war and he doesn't have, he's, you know, he's got pegs for legs and, and his, uh, let's see, I've got the lyrics here. Then came Ted without any legs and in their place, two wooden pegs. She kissed him a dozen times or two and said, my God, Ted, is it you? Now, were you drunk or were you blind when you left your two fine legs behind? Oh, you know, God. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's the same kind of story Americanized. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think he's, he's, wanted to take that John Brown name and say, no, like we need to get back to saying these things are bad. (laughs) You know, we need to get back to being critical of, of these uh, societal forces that are trying to put people in harm's way. I mean, you've got in the short time, like you said, he was writing a million songs at this time, but at the same time he wrote John Brown got masters of war being written. You've got um, with God on our side being written. Right. And you've got only upon in our game being written or only upon in their game being written. And and those songs, I think, characterize, you know, Masters of War is looking at the the military industrial complex. Right. Those are the guys pulling the strings. Yep. So he's he's putting his finger in their chest and he's saying, hey, you guys are bad. And here's why you're bad. John Brown and with God on our side, I feel like are both telling society, hey, you guys need to wake up (laughs) like you guys are supporting these Masters of War. Um, with this nationalist pride crap. And, uh, in reality, you know, it's damaging these, these, your kids that are being sent off to fight. It's not the rich people's kids. You know, it's not the, you know, the, the president of these, these military industrial complex companies that are going over and fighting. It's, it's normal people. Um, and we've, and, and I feel like both of those with God on our side and John Brown are saying, you've got to stop being so, uh, eager to send people to die. And then only upon in their game is where you said, like, like he's always had the sympathy for the little man where he points out that yes, all these bad things happen. And that's not obviously a direct military song that he's talking about there. Right. That's more of a, a racial equality society in general song. But, but I feel like those, those hit the three strata of, of, um, 
of of the incident that we're talking about. You know, you've got the 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 overarching like as puppet masters, then you've got society yeah. in general, yep. and then you've got the individuals that are getting caught up in this meat grinder, the puppet masters pulling the strings, and all the people they look up to in society, all the all their friends, their family, everyone supporting these efforts and forcing them to do things that they really, if they had all the information, probably wouldn't want to do. Yeah. If there's if there is anything that, that Bob Dylan, at least at the Bob Dylan of the 60s and maybe to the 70s, I guess, you could see is is he's the most suspicious of and the most knee-jerk reaction against is someone pushing someone else into something. Yes. That's that's his number. I think I, you would get the sense, again, where you could never know what goes on in his head. But I would imagine that if you could say, what is, like, the in Bob Dylan's mind, who is, like, the number, the biggest offender of, of, of the kind of person that could be out there? What's the worst thing you could do? It's push someone else into something else. And when you look at that, you say, well, geez, you know, well, then how else would he would have reacted when the folk scene started telling him what to do? You know, I mean, he has that like, well, excuse me. You know, I mean, right. I'm not going to go do my own thing. And I may even not necessarily want to go do something else, but I'm being pushed into this other thing. And so I'm going to fight against that. And so, yeah, those other songs you mentioned, they all come at the same idea. Right. That there is someone else being forced into something they don't necessarily i mean we don't get the sense john brown is being forced into this but he doesn't know what he's signing up for right and it, it's not and then until it's too late that he realizes what it is that he is what he has done and that is something bob's always been suspicious of throughout you know, to this day and he still talks about it in his current songs mm-hmm. this idea that there's this grander force that is whether again societal or romantic or or governmental pushing someone into something that they shouldn't be doing, don't know that they're doing. Uh, and again, in those other songs, he's more metaphorical. Although right. with God on our side is not subtle in a lot of places. No. Um, but, but John Brown, I mean, again, it is, he pairs it down to just this story about this poor guy. And again, I love the way it ends is that the, the guy just want John Brown just wanders. I love, by the way, we only hear John Brown's name once, mm-hmm. which is the first two words of the song. And right. that's it. We never hear it again, but it, that ending of just John Brown wandering off the train platform. Uh, and that's it. And we're, you know, we're, we're left to wonder where the rest of the story goes and we'll never know because that's what he chooses to end the song. But again, it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous piece of work. And again, underscores the breadth of uh, the catalog that a song like this, that's this powerful uh, again, seemingly was never even remotely considered for an album. Never once. It was never, again, never done. Never. He never pulled it out in any sort of rehearsals for any record. It was, it was done as a, as a uh, Whitmark demo and then pretty much left behind until the staple singers covered it in 1967 and then in the thick of the Vietnam war. And then he himself left that going for 20 years. But I mean, that's the song is still this good. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I, I think, uh, yeah, it, it, <clears throat> like, like you said, he, he, well, there's so many songs that are so, uh, entangled with imagery and uh and, and different interpretations of what he might be talking about or or who he's referencing and this is just so straightforward it almost doesn't fit with what he was putting out at the time and maybe yeah. right and maybe that's part of the reason maybe he yeah. decided you know what it doesn't it doesn't fit on times there are a change and although i would take this over hollis brown and <laughs> any in anywhere i like that song but hollis brown is so depressing to listen to right but yeah. i mean yeah maybe he just thought ah this is you know I mean, yeah, we'll never know what the, what the reasons were but uh, and it's just sort of interesting that it never surfaced on 
biograph. I mean, there were versions to pull from, but it never showed up in biograph. But again, and obviously it was on his mind because just two years later, he pulls it out and starts doing yeah. it with the, uh, with the Grateful Dead. But I said, it's, it's a remarkable song. I'm glad that it exists in some official form. I mean, again, it was later put out uh, on the, the live performances and the, the Whitmark demo bootleg, bootleg was out there. But I'm glad that he finally pulled out on the, on the MTV Unplugged record. I said, I've told the story before, back when I worked at a video store, we had the MTV Unplugged concert on VHS. And the, when I used to work in the mornings with the, with the manager, and he would go in the back to do the receipts for the previous day, which meant I was basically had the store to myself for the first two <laughs> hours of the day. And I always put on MTV Unplugged because mm. nobody came in at nine in the morning at the video store. So I was like, ah, nobody cares. So I put it on the closed circuit system. And I would just listen to the yeah. whole MTV Unplugged concert for the whole hour. It was, it was, you know, it was super fun to listen to because it's, it's a, the bootleg is even, I mean, there's really great material on the bootleg and you can argue that some of the stuff they ended up putting on the, the, the final record maybe wasn't the best choices in the world, but I'm glad John Brown made it through. Cause it's, yeah. it's a song that deserves, it deserved uh, a, some recognition outside of people willing to track down, you know, bootlegged concerts. I'm glad that it's on an official live album. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I, I think they were really smart to throw that on there as something that, that would, would entice someone that, you know, at that point, you know, he still, Bob still hadn't had his second resurgence. I mean, you know, we were, we, we hadn't gotten to the Bob that we know now yet. He was hmm. kind of on the end of, I mean, when was the, when was his anniversary concert? That was 1992. Yeah. So just a couple of years before this, I mean, that was a celebration of his career. Like it was over, right. Essentially. So we, we hadn't really got to next level, you know, next gear, Bob, um, and I think that including that song, including John Brown on the record, gave a lot of people that had been following his career a reason to to go out and listen to it um, because it wasn't available anywhere else. It wasn't something that you could just go, oh, well, I've heard that one. You know, I've listened, I've got the album that that's on originally. I don't need to hear the him sing this in New York. Um, right. So it was like a little a little nugget, a little uh, Easter egg, if you will, for for fans that had followed him for a long time. Absolutely, said it's 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 a it's a terrific song. It is not turgid, to quote uh, no. Clint Halen. No, <laughs> it's, it's no. a great song. So, yeah. well, well, Pete, thank you so much for for coming by and coming on the show to talk about this. This is great. This is I've always really liked this song, and uh, it was really fun to talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you having me on, Rob. It was uh, this this was a great experience. Well, that's fantastic. So, why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Okay, yeah, uh, so. Personally, uh, uh, my, my Instagram is, uh, at Peter Bylone. Um, last name's B-Y-L-O-N-E. Uh, but unless you want to f- like see pictures of my kids, I really wouldn't worry about following me there. <laughs> my, my personal Twitter is, uh, is, uh, at, and I'm going to, I'm going to say it and then I'm going to spell it. It's at Jersey transplant, but it's actually, uh, at J-R-Z. X P L A N T. Okay. Now that, now it makes sense. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and on there, I'm, I'm a little bit more active and, and a lot more political. Um, so if you're, if you're into that side of Twitter, then, <laughs> and you want to follow, yeah, great. But I'd like to point out that I've got, uh, I'm in the beginning stages of working with a very dear friend of mine on our own podcast. Um, and we haven't, we haven't recorded anything yet. We're, we're in the very early stages. Um, but we've got uh, accounts on Instagram and Twitter for it. And we hope that in the next six weeks to, to two months, we'll start pushing uh, content out. And uh, I would love to have a group of, of 
Dylan aficionados uh, be there when we get started. Cause I think the, the podcast is going to be about talking about um, issues that we, that we have in society that, that, that we don't, that, that we deal with every day, but we don't really talk about. It's not, they're not like sexy topics, right? But they're things that, that make you think about how you interact with the world and how the world interacts with you. And uh, I feel like Dylan fans above, above most others uh, are keen to uh, maybe take a step back and, and take in the bigger picture about how we interact with what's going on around us and how, uh, and how we can, you know, better predict uh, outcomes if we know kind of how to have the right inputs. So um, the name of the, the podcast is going to be um, is think significantly and the uh, the Instagram and Twitter handles for uh, for the is at um, think sig pod. That's T H I N K S I G P O D, and that's for both Twitter and Instagram. So uh, anybody that wants to follow us there, like I said, the next next couple of weeks to a couple of months, uh, we should start pumping out episodes, and hopefully you guys will find some uh, some interesting content there. And and my my friend that uh, this is this is her project uh i'm not even going to try and take any credit for this this is her idea <laughs> she asked me to to do it with her and i enthusiastically said yes um she is a hundred times more interesting than i am and more funny and i i would love to say that i'm the plucky comic relief but she is funnier than i am too so uh, i'm not really sure what role i play but i'm glad that she invited me to do it with her <laughs> i really can't wait to hear you try to distill what your show's about into like a log line for yeah, uh, apple podcast that's gonna be <laughs> Absolutely. Dreaded. Good luck there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> My stuff's easy. I talk about Bob Dylan songs. Done. You know, you, you're, that's you're right. really, you're really uh, climbing Mount Everest there. So, well, that's yeah. very cool. I, good, good luck with that. It's a, I know the feeling of what it's like to start a new podcast. It's always very exciting. So uh, I wish you luck with it. And said, so we will, uh, you heard him, everybody go, go check uh, Pete over there out, out on Twitter. You can check out the show and stuff. So for this show, of course, you can find all the episodes on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're always talking Bob over on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. And then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Henry Bernstein, Max Hutzel, and Sebastian Krug for their support of Pod Dylan. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Don't brown went off to war to fight on a foreign shore. His mama sure was proud of him. He stood so straight and tall in his uniform and all. His mama's face broke out into a grin. Oh, son, you look so fine. I'm glad you're a son of mine. Make me proud to know you weren't a gun. Do what the captain says. Light a medal so you'll get. We'll put him on the wall.